This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just so thrilled um, for this opportunity. Um, I'm hoping that all the folks who didn't come in will at least remember the name of the book and they're going to go buy your book, I yeah, hope. Um, but this is awesome because uh, Ari and I met at Reboot 20 years ago. It was like the first, the first year of Reboot. We got a bunch of Rebooters here in the room today. Um, and it was, what is Reboot? What is Reboot? Um, it was an experiment in Jewish conversation in which in the first Reboot, it was 35 Jews under 35 um, who were Jewish, but not, n- not in Jewish spaces with the exception of Amichai Laulavi and Andy Bachman and I, who are all young rabbis, um, to have conversations about what our Jewish inheritance means to us. And the goal was if you like ply a bunch of Jews with enough booze and creme brulee and hot tubs that like interesting conversations would emerge and like maybe something good would grow out of it. And lots of good has grown out of it. Um, and so one of those, one of this, part of the good is like these beautiful relationships. And so we've gotten to sort of track each other through um, a couple decades now, and it's pretty, it's pretty wonderful. Um, but Ari, I, as I said when we started. Um, Ari just never ceases to amaze me with his incredible wisdom. Um, and when we sit down to dinner with, with his wife, Sharon, and, and David, um, my husband, you know, I think we just want to like talk and talk and talk for days. So we don't want to get up at the end of the meal. And it's because you have such a fascinating um, perspective on, on the world that overlaps and intersects with with our universe, but is different and like a step ahead and a step on like from a different perspective or angle than, than I'm coming from. And I always learn from being with you. So I'm really honored. Ari gave a incredible Ted talk some years ago um, that has far outpaced my Ted talk. He has like two more, probably now many more than 2.6 million views on your Ted talk. Just oh, as if you don't know. As if you don't know. I mean, I, don't, I only checked like 15 minutes ago, so I don't know. Things could have changed. <laughs> anyway, before the book came out, it was 2.6, so I'm sure it's many more now. Um, he was recently on the cover of some, like, what is it, what is it called? Spirituality and Health, so uh, Whole Foods. You will see me staring at you as you're checking out next to the oh, that old sugar-free yeah. gum. Right, right. Um, and, and the book has, is, is a hit. Um, and the reason that it's a hit is because it's, it is a short, incredibly accessible little piece of wisdom that is absolutely transformative. And, um, and so I, I want to just say about Long Path and about Ari and Long Path Labs that Ari founded, maybe I'll talk a little bit about that and about being a professor at Columbia University School of International Public Affairs, where I, was, uh, where I also did a graduate program, um, that there's a passage in the book um, in which Ari is trying to elaborate on this perspective, what it means to hold kind of a long view, which you're going to hear about in a moment. And he, he just because he has this Jewishness built into his like kishkas, he, the thing he pulls from is the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the Exodus from Egypt, which I don't know, Sean, is that how many times have you heard me preach about the Exodus from Egypt and um, in the last like 19 years? And, and yet the way that you speak about the Exodus with this like simplicity and brilliance like shook me to the core. And I thought, oh my God, it's been here all along and I hadn't even seen it that way. 
the idea that the Israelites, as they traversed the desert, could only deal with all of that war and disease and hunger because they always held before them a vision of a land flowing with milk and honey. And what happens to us when we no longer have a vision of where we want to go, but can only complain about how hungry we are and how scared we are and how dirty our shoes are and, you know, on the journey and, and how broken we are. And I'm just, it was just so incredibly touching to see you, you using our story that is my story and our story as a way of pushing us to, to live differently in the world. So it's a beautiful piece of, of wisdom that you have here, but it's a wisdom for living. It's not just, it's not just, oh, intellectually, I resonate to that idea. It makes me want to think about how we live differently. And I'm so moved by that. So welcome to Ari Wallach. Um, and I wonder, Ari, if like, let's just start. We're doing this in dialogue form because he's been on this book tour and he has to give lots of speeches. So we thought, I'll just ask questions and then we sure. can engage. Tell us about Long Path. Like, what is this idea? How did you birth this idea into the world? And, and what, what, do you have to, what do you have to offer us today? Uh, so, so I'll answer that. But first of all, I want to thank everyone for just even coming in here and those who are watching online, especially my in-laws in Florida who may be, you know, taping this and showing it later. So, so thank you. Um, Look, the, the, to start about kind of what, before I get into what is Long Path, I'll give you a little bit of, a little bit of my history because that actually helps kind of you understand the underlying like ontology, like what is Long Path. And so most people, when they talk about like who they are and where they're from, they obviously say, well, I was born in, in such and such place on such and such date. I actually tend to go a little bit further back than my own birthday. I go back to my father's birthday in the mid-1920s in a small village in Poland called Baranowicz. And so as a teenager, uh, he basically, the Germans invaded when he was 17 years old. And, and relatively quickly, he lost half of his family on, on, the, on the front. And then his, his village was turned, basically all the Jews were placed into a ghetto. His father was killed in front of him and he escaped the ghetto and joined the Jewish underground. And so growing up around the dinner table, obviously I'm a, you know, I, my, my dad was 50 years old when he had me. So I was, you know, usually these are stories of grandparents, not of parents. So I grew up at a dinner table, obviously more often and more than a dinner table, hearing these stories about World War II, about the Germans, about all the things that can go wrong in the world. Okay. But that's only half the story. On the flip side, my mother was born in the 1945 uh, in, in California but she was, a, she was an artist and a student of Buckminster Fuller. So some of you know Buckminster Fuller was a kind of a futurist, an architect, an engineer, kind of a radical thinker. If, if you've ever gone by a, a playground and seen a geodesic dome, that was Buckminster Fuller. Mm. But he had a lot of ideas beyond the geodesic dome. And he was always kind of pushing the limit on, on human potential. You know, I, I won't quote him. This is not verbatim. But one of the things that always stuck with me that my mom would say is he would say, look, we have the... We have the resources, we have the technology, we have everything we need to feed, clothe, house, and educate every single human being on the planet. Why don't we? Mm. And so this is the person who my mom studied underneath. So in the, in the late 60s, he basically said, Susan, my mom's name, you're a great artist, you're doing all this work here in the States, you should kind of, you should go abroad, you should open your kind of perspective. And this is in the 60s where you, don't, you can't just jump on a nonstop flight anywhere in the world. So she went to Mexico, where my father, after World War II, had done Nazi hunting with the British, the Americans, and the Russians, and inevitably, inevitably fled the Russians who wanted him to go to Moscow, made his way to Cuba. He was there for 10 years until he and Castro had a falling out. Uh, because my, my, my dad was one of the few people in Cuba at the time 
who both spoke fluent Russian and Spanish, but who wasn't necessarily coming from the Russian side. So Castro loved my dad, but my dad was like original anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian because of what he had seen. So that's how he makes it to Mexico. So this is all kind of a prelude to Long Path because whenever we would have any conversation at the dinner table growing up about anything happening in the news, it wasn't just about what was happening in the present, right? It could be the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89, whatever it was, something major like that or something minor, you always had my dad kind of looking back, well, how did we get to this point? Because mm. he was very much focused on the past. I would come home in high school, he'd be watching black and white World War II movies, not as history, but literally as a yearbook of his life, right? That's, that was with my dad. My mom's side, she was a futurist. So any conversation that we had at the dinner table always spanned about 200 years, going back 100 years, going forward 100 years. And that's how I was raised. So fast forward for about 20 years, and, and I, did, I did a lot after college. I'll save you the biography. You can read it in the book. But basically what I always did was I was always at the intersection of kind of strategy for large organizations and political campaigns. I first started in politics working for President Clinton in 1996 in Washington. And what happened over the course of you know, a decade plus is eventually the work that I started doing for organizations is what we call kind of classic futuring work. I'm a futurist. So I'd work with these organizations, helping them think about you know, the next five, 10, 15 years. Because that's about as far as any organization really wants to go out. And in 2016, like many of us, I had a kind of come to Moses moment. I saw what was happening in the world and I was, I was watching what was going on in the news and dismayed at the election results, obviously. And everyone was like, everyone kept saying, well, how did we get here? Like this came out of nowhere. But the reality is it didn't come out of nowhere. It had been with us for a very long time. It had been with us, hearing my, my dad had passed away in the 90s, but I could hear him in my head saying, this didn't just come out of nowhere. In the same way that World War II didn't start in 1939 or 1940, it started in the 20s, it started in the, in the teens, right? At the end of World War I. So I started kind of unpacking and started looking at some of what was going on in the country in 2016 and realizing this was decades in the making. And, I, and we won't go into the politics of it, but I realized we didn't have a way of thinking about how we want to see tomorrow manifest that takes into account yesterday. Mm. So all of the futuring that I came up through kind of a classic school of futuring, which is, you know, you build scenarios, you map out different ways that tomorrow could unfold, but you're always kind of in the present looking forward. And I realized that if we really wanna do the work, the work work, we're gonna have to situate ourselves in something bigger than just a timeline moving forward, but one that moves forward and backward. Now at the same time, like probably many of you in this room, I grew up in a family that talked about their feelings and their emotions and, and Jung and Freud, and we were kind of a very psychoanalytic family, right? And I realized a lot of the work that I was doing with these very large organizations, when we were doing kind of classic futuring work, was very up here at 30,000 feet, very kind of meta. But then when I was working with these senior leaders, these are Fortune 10 CEOs or leaders of the United Nations or people in the White House, after we would do kind of our classic offsite with post-it notes about the futures that we want, we'd go out for drinks afterwards. And within two or three drinks, they would start telling me all these issues that they had at home or in their life. And I realized so much 
of what I wanted to kind of extract from them in terms of what the future could be was blocked by these internal psychodynamic issues at the individual level, mm. as well as at the collective level. These things, I mean, your sermon today was spot on. These things that we don't talk about, we're kind of asleep at the wheel trying to future. So all of that in 2016 led to this TED Talk, which maybe has a couple more views since we last talked, hopefully. Um, and... I realized we needed a new framework for this moment that was still kind of future-oriented, but took in both kind of... So if, if any of you are familiar with the United Nations, there's the sustain, Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And it's all these things that we want to do externally, water, education, women's rights, all these issues. But at the same time, there's no IDGs. There's no internal development goals. We have these as individuals. We go on retreats, we go to therapy, we do these things within the confines of what I, our, our own life, but we don't actually extrapolate those to a collective. So I realized I wanted to find a way of bridging these two different worlds, the kind of classic futuring work that I did with these big organizations. But then on the weekends, I would go on these retreats, silent meditation, mostly Buddhism or, or with my synagogue or through Krishnamurti or other things. And I realized if we want to move forward as a, as a species, and I talk a lot about homo sapiens a lot in the book. I don't talk about society. I want to kind of root it in the science. We're going to have to start kind of combining these. So what Long Path is, is it, it is an applied mindset. Anyone who reads the book or goes into it is going to find some very familiar themes because those themes are basically, a lot of them are coming from Judaism, a lot of them are coming from Buddhism, and a lot of them are coming kind of from psychodynamic theory, the three schools that were always part of the world that I did in my classic futuring work. Mm. So Long Path is an applied mindset to help us as individuals and as a collective, and by collective I mean homo sapiens, kind of make it through this moment. And this moment, and we can talk about it in a second, is what I, what I term the intertidal. We're kind of in between these two places. So, that, so, so think of Long Path as this mindset that's very much a verb, it's very much a process. And that's what led to the book. I love this. So first I wanna share with you that um, I was at a, I'm part of this Auburn Senior Fellowship. Um, Auburn's a seminary in New York City. And so there's a group of clergy and you've met some of, some of these folks as they've come through town, like amazing um, clergy leaders from around the country. And we had one session together um, where we asked one question for a two hour session, which is where are you from? I've shared the city car at some point. And if I tell you that two hours was not enough for 15 people to answer that question and that we cried and cried as we were answering it because, the, because what they were really asking is not Short Hills, New Jersey, you know, nobody wants to hear about Short Hills, New Jersey. <laughs> um, but, but like really what's the core story that defines your own sense of identity. And it's such, it's so powerful to imagine you sitting between your father with his grief and his survival instinct and your mother, this artist and futurist and, and, you know, just taking in the full breath of what they have to offer you. And I think it's important for all of us to really think about where we're from. Right. Um, so what's the kind of emotional landscape of our, of our core identity building, which I think is really interesting. Um, I, I'm really curious about the intertidal. Um, and I wonder if you can share with us what, how you discovered it, which you talk about in the book yeah. really beautifully and what it means, because I think, 
um, that a lot, you just, just, you said earlier that, you know, a lot of people when Trump was elected were, were like, oh my God, how did this happen? And um, I remember the SNL sketch that that um, Saturday night after the election when it was like black and white people in the room together and white people were like, oh my God. And all the black people were like, yeah, that's America. And so I think some people, some of us were very surprised and some of us were like, yeah, like we see that this comes right. But it it felt, I mean, it clearly feels like a rupture in American society that, that even the people who knew that we were on this path and um, were, were still like something something that was always breaking fully, you know, fully broke in the last several years. Can you, can you talk about what it means to live in the brokenness? What does it mean no. for, what is the intertitle and how do you find your bearings when you're living in the intertitle and what's, what's the birth of, uh, of new possibility that comes from that space? So the, so an intertidal or an intertidal zone if from kind of a marine ecology perspective, is that piece of land that sometimes is above water and sometimes below water, right? If you've ever been tide pooling, so I grew up, uh, I was born in Mexico, but grew up kind of tide pooling in Monterey and Northern California where I was raised. And so very much kind of always was kind of exposed to this in-between place. Um, and I was always fascinated by it. And one of the things I realized as I was kind of doing research for both for the book and also trying as kind of an anthropologist to understand this moment we're in, was trying to think, well, every, things feel broken. Things feel very different. And I would, I would go to all these kind of futurist conferences and people would say, oh, well, you know, we're in this moment of flux. We're in this moment of, of change. But that didn't feel quite right. It felt like there was something more going on. And what I realized is the intertidal is a place where, if, if you've ever been at the edge of the ocean and, you're kind of, and the water's kind of coming out and you'll, you'll sit on the, you'll be there bare feet, and the water comes in, and as the water kind of pulls back out, you, you kind of sink in the sand. You don't actually move, but you can tell something is very different going on. And that's very much this feeling right now. And so the reason I, I, I kind of talk about this moment as an intertidal is because, and this comes up a lot in the book, so much of when we talk about the present and the future, we always do it through a dystopian lens, right? We always talk about like the end times or everything that's going wrong. And the reason I chose an intertidal is because the tide comes in, the tide comes out. And these are kind of movements uh, of the earth and of societies and civilizations. And we've been here before. Probably the, the first major intertidal, the major kind of narrative disruption was the, about 10, 12,000 years ago, was the movement from hunter-gatherer through to an agricultural society. That gave birth to a whole bunch of things. It gave birth to cities. It gave birth to God, right? We, we remember, as we moved, it used to be when we were in a clan traveling, we, would, we wouldn't see more than 30 other homo sapiens our entire life. And so when we were in that group, trust was an all-time high because we saw what everyone was doing. It wasn't until the agricultural revolution, until we moved into cities and we had walls and all of a sudden we were meeting people for the first time that we needed something kind of omniscient, an omniscient narrative to help guide us to be more moral and ethical. This is the rise of God, right? And we can talk about that later. But the point is all sorts of things happen in these intertitles that you can't even imagine. So that was the first big one. Then we have... Um, probably I would say the, the fall of the Roman Empire. This is through, obviously through a very Western perspective into the Middle Ages and into uh, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And so what I, this intertidal is really kind of the end of a 400 year run. 
in terms of what the Enlightenment brought into Western culture and the way that we think, epistemology, ontology, how we make sense of truth, the kind of binary reductionism that science gave us. And I talk about in the book, I'm all for science. I'm all for reductionism. Without that, I wouldn't have been able to have an appendectomy. We, there's certain things like, I, li I, like, I like microphones. I like clean water, right? I'm not knocking that. One of the things that came about moving into a world where we only gave truth to things that we could measure, things that we could scientifically weigh, was that we threw out the sense of the spiritual and the divine. We threw out the baby with the bathwater. Part of the reason we had to do that in that last intertidal was because we don't realize it now, and we have an inkling of what this would kind of look like coming up in Israel pretty soon, but the role of the theocracy in state governmental affairs Four or 500 years ago, uh, the, the church could come into your home and tear your family, do whatever they wanted. They had full control and full power. So part of what science did was kind of, as we, I'm gonna, I'm not, I'll pull away from the science, like we moved away from the idea that everything revolved around the earth. That we moved to the Copernican revolution and Gutenberg and all these things, amazing things happened, but we reduced our connection and we created a false bifurcation between humans and nature. Mm. We are now seeing that at this point in time, people are severely questioning that. They're saying, well, wait a second, there is another narrative. There is another way of us living on the land and, and in connection to one another. Mm -hmm. So this intertidal, that, that's the positive. The negative is we live in this broken moment where the narrative, the, well, what I call the official future, is no longer working. The official future, the American dream, everything will be fine if we consume and do all these certain things, no longer is working. And we're anxious, we're depressed, we're sad, we're revolting, we're voting for retro-futuring, retro-futures, make America great again. And so in this broken moment, in this intertidal, it can, be, it can go either way. It can be very dangerous. It can be 1930s Europe. Or, or it can be, you know, and I'm not, not to romanticize it, but it can be kind of a Medici Florence, a kind of regenerative rethinking of the ways that we interact with one another in the world. Mm. So that's the intertitle, and that's the moment we're in. So why I wrote this book right now and the work that I do at Long Path Labs is I found that we didn't, and Long Path is not meant to be an answer. It's very much kind of a process. This is not a mindset that says, oh, this is this is the way forward, and this, this is all the answers. That would be a, a much longer book and a false book. What I wanted to do was provide a way of thinking and feeling in this moment so that you can successfully navigate this intertidal as a human, as a parent, as a leader, as a rabbi, and then use that to kind of guide yourself and those around you to successfully navigate this towards the light, towards futures that we want, as opposed to the dark, the 1930s that we don't want. That's great. Thank you. I want to, let's, the, you can clap. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, I want to, I want to talk about climate and, and the earth for, for a moment. Um, first of all, what you're saying about, about writing a new story for our planet and for the way that we as human beings engage with the earth is something that is really at the heart of my sister Devorah's work as a, you know, an urban homesteader and a farmer and trying to, for decades now, get us to understand, to be in different relationship um, with, with the land. And actually Rabbi Panitz, who might be in this room or may, may have walked out, um, gave an incredible sermon about this. I just want to bring to your attention, if you didn't hear it on Erev Rosh Hashanah, and you can find it online, um, about what it means for us to write a new story about yep. our relationship with the earth. And that new story is, oh, are you here? 
Um, no, he's not here. Um, is not surprisingly, maybe is really an old, is, old story. Is bringing back an old story in a new way. Um, so, part of what's challenging for me in thinking about the future is I feel like there's a, I mean, there's a ticking bomb right now. Yep. And so this is why when I shared at the Aliyah um, in services, this is why I harumphed when you said, you know, a thousand years, 10,000 years, because I feel like, you know, maybe in the time of Dr. King, he could say the arc of the moral universe is long and we've got a long time to get there, but eventually we'll get there. But now I feel like the arc of the moral universe is long and we've got a short time to get there. Otherwise, you know, like a billion climate refugees in the next 20 years. And so like give it, given that we have failed so far to, to really to, like, not just to articulate a new story about our relationship with the earth, but to manifest that story in radically transformed behavior. Do we not have a, a more of a limited time frame that we're, th I mean, how dare you think about a thousand? Like, how do you find the chutzpah to think in like good chutzpah is good in our way of looking at it? How, where does the chutzpah come from to believe that we can outpace the, you know, what seems to be an, an imminent de demise that's going to come from, from our reckless engagement with, with the earth and its finite resources. Yes, I, I get asked this. Sorry, <clears throat> sorry to depress you Yeah, all. sorry. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we're, we're dipping, but we're going we're gonna to go up really fast. It always um, goes back up. <laughs> I, I've been asked this a few times. Look, the, let, let's be totally, I, I'm not Pollyannish. The, the world as we know it, in many ways will not be with us over the next several decades. One of the things I didn't mention was where, while I was doing this work and creating the book, I was working for the UN Refugee Agency, setting up their futures lab, both in, in the Horn of Africa, Geneva, New York City, and Washington, DC. And one of the things I kept asking, <clears throat> one of the things I kept asking the leadership was, what are we gonna do with several hundred million climate refugees? And, but, but, and, I, and I don't mean to throw the UN under the bus, because, but I was in a room with some folks from the UN and from different organizations, and they all kind of said the same thing, which is, yeah, that's going to happen, but I'll, I'll be retired by then. Like, that's not, that's not on me. Um, and so it was, and so that was, I left that part out, but this is really in many ways what kind of drove me to, to, to do something about this. Um, the, the world as we know it in the way that we consume, the way that we fly, the way that we do things will probably not be one that our kids and our grandchildren know. Let's be totally clear. Um, we're working with organizations right now, and I know we're in Southern California right now, but who are thinking about, well, what happens when SoCal gets too hot and starts to run out of water? How do we, what, what will the internal migration of the late 2040s look like from the Southwest up to the Midwest of the US? There are folks who are working on this. <clears throat> but we're not doing it in a way that's cataclysmic or Mad Max. We've actually made significant progress. Will we be able to be under 1.5? No, we probably won't do it. Why? Because we're unbelievably short-termistic in the way that we think, in the way that we vote, in the way that our leaders work, right? They're focused on quarterly. Look, if, if you're focused on quarterly earnings, because that's what drives your bonus, you're not going to be doing long-term strategy work, right? We, we, we've gone into work with organizations for big for-profit companies, and they're just focused. They're like, hey, we want to talk about the future like the next six months. Because mm. that's really what they want to do is, is drive that. So like, we, we know that story. At the same time, there are folks, there are 
different kinds of technologies. So I, I won't bore you with carbon capture or regenerative or renewable power, but we are making strides towards that. That being said, the shifts that we need to make are much more based on how we as society define success, pleasure, and luxury. So I would make a very strong argument that, and I was saying this to Melissa earlier, and I think also um, maybe, maybe to you also earlier, that when I was on the roof here, like earlier during lunch, and I, so I go to a lot of meetings with a lot of very fancy people in ties, <clears throat> where a lot of money and power is being moved about. And I would make a very strong argument that most of the people in those rooms would give an arm and a leg and give it all up if they had a sense of community in place like I saw on the rooftop earlier here. We are completely divorced from that sense of community and being with one another in such a way that we look to fill that hole, that vacuum, that existential vacuum with stuff that we don't need. Now, I'm not arguing against consumption, although I am. What I'm arguing for is a rethinking of what success metrics look like for a society and moving from one of consumption to one of caring and community. Those are going to be the things that shift us so that, yes, and, and that's what gives, that's the chutzpah and that's the hope because I see things like eCar. There's a reason I'm on the, not just because I love you, but I'm on here on the advisory board because I see there are spots, there are, you know, roots, green shoots coming up of folks who get it, who are willing to trade in these external trappings of success for internal ones. That's what gives me hope that we'll be here in a thousand or 10,000 years, coupled with the work that philanthropists and to be honest, a lot of young people are doing, not just on the advocacy side, but rethinking what is and isn't important to them. And then from that, we start to have policies and politicians that lead us to better tomorrows. It's Thank you for saying that. I feel like that's a great pitch for ECAR and I'm grateful. I mean, I, I think that it also goes right to the heart of what's different between long path and some other articulations of long-termism that I've heard about yep. recently. And so we talked after an article came out that was about... Um, about these billionaires that are like they're trying to plant the seeds for the future in these underground bunkers that, you know, and then they're going to hire Marines and like SEAL, you know, SEAL teams that are going to come protect them. But how do you keep them from murdering you and taking your wife? And like there's this whole and it, I mean, it's it. It's, it's real. It's, it's very real. I know. I know you've seen some of it with your own eyes. Yeah. And, but I like I what strikes me as so sad about that is that like in the midst of the beauty and the wonder and the complexity of our social universe right now, that some of the people with the most resources are investing in the most isolated, insular, individualistic, selfish version of what the future could look like, like planning how to colonize Mars for himself instead of thinking about how to build an, a, like a healthy, vibrant ecosystem here on Earth, how to use our, the, you know, their money and resources to actually transform and support a, a different kind of sustainable reality here. And I, I think that, so, so there are different kinds of people thinking in the long term, and some of them are coming to the opposite conclusion of you, which is instead of community investment and like really spreading wide, it's going to the narrowest, smallest place that's about me and my family and my seed and my billions. And that, I just want to name that because I feel like that's yeah. in the air. Um, that, you know, this is, this book is unusual in, in the sense of, in, in many ways, but because there are other guys who are, there are they all guys, all the futurists? Yeah. Mostly. Right. There's a, there, yes, that's a whole other conversation. We should, yes. we should have that conversation yeah. too. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm like, 
I don't know. Do I have the right to order at the restaurant for my children? Or like, who am I? And you're like, I know what the future is going to be. So, <laughs> all right, we can talk about that. <laughs> we can talk about it. But, but like, there, this, is, this is very unusual because your answer is not about the individual. It's about the collective and the community. And I think that there's something so powerful for all of us to hear in that. Yeah, I mean, let's be totally clear. Like, at heart, I'm a strategist, right? So people call, for 20 years, I've been helping folks solve really big problems. That's what I do. The biggest problem I see right now at, at, at a global planetary scale is that we do not have a story of the world that we want. We have a very strong story of the world that we don't want. Mm. So we know what we don't want. We don't want to go back to Egypt, right? We, we know that. But this idea of, you know, if we think about uh, Odysseus going back to Ithaca and the Odyssey, or specifically what I call it in the book, this land of milk and honey, we don't have that. And, and I talk a lot about in the book, the power of a vision of a world that you want and emotionally connecting that as opposed to just intellectually or cognitively. Mm. Uh, a lot of the people that are on the advisory board of Long Path Labs are some of the leading researchers in emotional intelligence and kind of the role of emotions in helping people achieve their goals. At an individual later, it's, it's basically smart psychology, right? It's not see yourself getting the ball in the net, it's how do you feel when the ball goes into the net. The hippocampus, which can't tell the difference between the past and the future, it's actually atemporal, is what the role of memories, okay, let's go back. The role of emotions. We have this problem in, in Western society where we think emotions are all about the past. That's what kind of Freud led us to believe. Emotions are actually there to help us, to guide us towards future action. You know when something happens and we feel really bad or we feel really good? It's so we don't do that bad thing again or we, or we do more of the good thing. That's what they are there for. Now, they are connected emotions and those memories that connect them happen in the hippocampus. Uh, I gave a talk here last month to a bunch of screenwriters and showrunners, and I was talking about what is the impact of a, of a media ecology, movies, films, and books that is only showing dystopian futures. Mm -hmm. Because the problem is our brains, our hippocampus, can't tell the difference. It actually can't tell the difference between a past mm -hmm. memory and a future memory, which is the media that we take in. So I was kind of calling them out and saying, what we're doing is we're feeding negative emotional stories that our brain, that are their visions, that our brain thinks are actually the world to come, mm. which leads to despair, anxiety, and depression. Mm. So what we don't have are these positive visions that we actually want. We don't have them in media, right? So we, we'll put that aside, but we're in LA right now. We don't have them in our own life. We know very much what we want to avoid, but more often than not, we don't know what it is that we actually want. And so in, in, in doing this and kind of in, in thinking about how we move kind of society forward and, and where the book kind of moved towards the, the, the back half of the book is how important it is for the individual's brain at the hippocampus layer to understand that are, there are better tomorrows and have those very explicit visions of them. And then I ask people many times throughout the book, how do you think your great, great, great grandchildren or your descendants, how do you want them to feel? And I don't, the reason I do that is because it's just, it's a sleight of hand because of what that does to the reader is it starts actually activating your hippocampus to feel and have what I call transgenerational empathy, which then leads to you making different decisions in the present. Mm -hmm. 
So the, the, the neuroscience of this is, is rock solid. Not because I wrote it, but because I'm relying on really great thinkers who think about this at the individual level and I'm extrapolating it towards this moment. And that's what gives me hope because there are people that are doing research and showing us how to do this. We just have to then take it in and then do it. It's, you know, thank you for that. Wow. Um, I do remember when, you know, after the 2016 election, when 5 million people took to the streets and, and then, you know, almost every day after that, that some people said, you know, this is a generation that's been raised on the Hunger Games. Like, of, that one good, like one really positive thing about dystopian futures is that it shows us um, the war, you know, it makes it alerts us to the warning signs of how bad something could be. At the same time, I really understand and appreciate what you're saying about this. And I, this is why I was so struck by the Ministry for the Future, the Kim Stanley Robinson, which I, I, I don't know if, if folks have read this book, but I mean, it's it's really a near future kind of it's not dystopian. It's a near future kind of sci fi. Fic, it's fiction, but it's like nonfiction. I think even on the cover, it's called like sci fi nonfiction or something. Yeah. And because he asks us to imagine what it could actually look like. And it's it's a little dark because the reality is really challenging and a little dark. And also they're able, like human beings are able to address and triumph over some of the most intractable problems of our time. And it, for me reading that book, it was the first time I actually saw something that didn't seem Pollyannish that felt like, oh, we there will be a, a lot of people are gonna die from these heat waves. But it, it could activate in us a kind of like collective fervor to keep human, humanity alive on this planet that could lead us to make important and hard decisions um, that we need to make in order to survive. So I really resonate to what you're saying about the danger of these kind of negative dystopian images. Um, they fill us with a sense of despair. And I do remember, you know, in the multi-faith justice and, and, and specifically in the racial justice space, we often know what we're fighting against, and it, it and it's very hard to co to co cohere around or to you know to to unify around what we're fighting for, um, and especially when things are as bad as they've been, we know what we don't want. But can we share a dream or a vision of what else could come instead? Yeah, I mean, let, let's go back to the brain for a second. So one of the things that we're hardwired for is what neuroscientists call negativity bias. We're always looking for the negative. Why? Because negative things kill you and you want to avoid death. That's the first principle of being a biological is entity. Is that just Ashkenazi Jews or everybody? Yeah, I mean, we, we take it to, we, we're black belts in it because well earned. Um, <laughs> And so we're always going to be seeking out those bad dystopian things because those are the things that we don't want. Those are the warning things. Actually being what we call protopian. So it's not dystopian. It's not utopian because utopia has always fallen to dystopia. But protopia, a term developed by a, a thinker, Kevin Kelly, 10 years ago, which basically means a tomorrow better than today, right? It means like we're working towards it. I, in this audience, I won't do it, but in other audiences, I'll say like, we're working towards that messianic moment, right? Which always freaks people out whenever I bring that up, but I, I think in this room is a safe space. It's okay. um, that, but that's what it is. So it's not, we're not gonna be, we're not there, but we, it's upon us, this may sound familiar, not to avoid the work, but start doing it, but then recognizing much in the same way. I start the book with the story about Honey coming up against an old, uh, an old man who's planting a carob tree. And he goes, why are you planting this carob tree? How long does it take for a carob tree for there to be shade and there to be fruit? This very old man says, oh, it could take a couple of decades. 
He goes, well, why are you doing this? You'll be long gone. And he goes, because when I was young, I played in the shade of a carob tree and I ate from a carob tree's fruit. So it's upon us to plant carob trees whose shade we will never know. Mm -hmm. That is the essence of what it means to act ethically in this moment and to have hope and to be kind of protopian is to build towards those better tomorrows, recognizing that we may not necessarily live in them, but it's incumbent upon us to start making those happen. Mm. And so a negativity bias is very easy for us to fall prey and say, no, 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 these are things we don't want. I, I think I told you this, I met, and we won't go in, there's a whole backstory to this, but I met Charles Koch uh, about four or five years ago. Some of you guys know who the Koch brothers are. And I, and I met him and we were having this conversation and I said, you know, it, it's amazing because they do the best long-term thinking in politics and in policy, whatever your politics are. They, when I say they do the best, because they actually execute against long-term visions. They keep and winning. They keep, and they keep winning. I'm being nonpartisan here. So I, so I said to Charles, I go like, what? And it's the same thing. I go like, what, what's the magic? And the magic is that you put hundreds of millions of dollars a year into everything, right? And he goes, no, the left puts hundreds of millions of dollars a year into everything too. So the, I go, so what is it that you, you know, like you, you have a top-down command structure? He's like, no, you guys have that too. And I go, what is it? He goes, we know what we want. You only know what you don't want. Mm. And so when we think about our role as agents, having change both at our individual level, if anyone has ever done therapy, maybe in this room, um, your therapist at some point will say, well, what is it that, and it looks like you're doing, it's on relationship. And then they'll eventually get to the point and they'll say, okay, well, what do you want? And then you have to start actually thinking about, well, what, what kind of relationship do I want with myself, with my inner voice, with my parents, with my past? with my collective past? What is, that really, what is it that you want? It's really tough for us to do that. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to do here in the book is say, okay, now I'm gonna take it one step further. What do we all want mm. together? What does that Ithaca, what does that land of milk and honey look like that we actually want? And you're right. It's gonna be very, very difficult to cohere around one specific future, which is why one of the tenets of Long Path is that we have to move from future thinking to futures thinking with an S, with a plural. Now that means, but that also means we have to bound it within some sort of ethos. So it can't just be whatever we want. We have to bound it. And the way I bound it in the book is around this thinking of collective flourishing. Mm -hmm. But collective flourishing that doesn't come at the expense of future generations. What that looks like, what those details are up to all of us to figure out. That's a much longer book. That's not the one that I wanted to write. I wanted to kind of tee up what those questions are. Beautiful. Um, I, I, I really uh, resonate to that. I appreciate that. So I want to, I know that folks might have some questions um, that you want to ask. So I want to invite you. Um, we're going to, we're going to keep going for a few minutes, but I would love, do we have any people who want to, who want to ask? Yeah. So why don't we... If you can just introduce yourself and then um, speak loudly, or there's a mic. Melissa will bring a mic around to you. Hi, thank you for joining us here today. Um, my question is about a, a movement that I feel like has very similar, uh, a, a lot in common with what you're talking about, which is effective altruism, and that is the idea of like giving money to causes that will help future generations. And that movement has taken a pretty big hit in the last few weeks because a lot of its supporters were crypto founders that have gone bankrupt. I wonder if you could sort of differentiate how you see the, see the future versus effective altruists and what you have in common, what's different from that movement? So, so it's a great question. It's one I try to avoid as much as possible. Um, usually it's when I'm like, oh, is it, we're, we're done. Um, the means can never justify the ends. 
how we carry ourselves through our day-to-day action actually creates chain reactions that reverberate over the next several thousand years. How you are with your children, with your parents, with your colleagues, with the barista actually matters. They are not a, you can't justify a certain level of doing something for some grand vision of the future. That's called fascism, to be totally clear. I'm not saying EA is necessarily fascist, but what I'm saying is if we, so, so Effective Altruism is a big movie that came out of Oxford. A guy wrote a book, came out the same day as mine, which was a whole other story. Um, and, um, but a lot of it was, one of the biggest funders was this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, who ran FTX, a massive crypto exchange. And you may or may not be pro-crypto, but what I can tell you is, if we think about crypto and blockchain, a great example is at any given, and they're making changes, but a lot of cryptocurrency was highly unsustainable in its energy usage, was at one point using the actual energy that the, the nation of Spain uses. And this wasn't to actually do anything, but just to make more money for more folks so that you could then spend it effectively as an effective altruist. This is a gross oversimplification. I know I'm gonna get a bunch of hate mail for this. So, but, but that being said, that actually matters. And so I think that the difference, at least how I view it, and, and, I've, and I've had these conversations back and forth with a bunch of EA folks, and they say, well, the crypto wasn't just all we did. We did other stuff. But the main thing is that the, 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 you, you can't justify the, the means actually matter. That's actually all there is. There is no ends, right? So whether it's 1,000 years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, right? Because I, I actually don't, to be totally honest, I don't care if homo sapiens are around 10,000 years from now, if we're all terrible, miserable, mean people. Like that, that, that's, not, that's not the vision that I think about for our species. I think about something, think about the person that you know that is the most grounded and the most in themselves and the most full of love, right? They probably done a bunch of work on themselves and had some, maybe some difficult circumstances or great circumstances. But think about who those individuals are and then realize we could be like that at six, seven billion strong on this planet. What has to happen to get to that point? And it's not going to be by crypto mining necessarily, but it's going to be by doing a completely different way that we go about our business at a day-to-day micro action level, not these big pie in the sky ways. Wow. Great. Sivia, did you have a comment? Hi, I'm Sivia Schwartz-Gatzig. Um, thank you so much. I sort of have a question that goes both to the past and to the future. So I'm trying to figure out, like Rabbi Browse talked today about in, in her sermon about, you know, avoiding the woke culture and avoiding dealing with our past. So how do we even get, get those folks, assuming that we're not avoiding it, maybe we are in other issues, but how do we get them on board to start thinking about the future by acknowledging the past. And then at the same time, I work in philanthropy. How do I get the philanthropists that I work with to start thinking longer term? To start having that, you know, we're all about measurable outcomes mm -hmm. and outputs and three years, five years, but we're really not. I mean, I think that the Koch brothers have proved their point over and over again. Look at our Supreme Court. I mean, that's, that's part of their long-term strategy. How do we get the people that have the money and therefore the power to think in those, in those ways? So two great questions. I'll do the, I'll do the first one as, as, as 
quickly as I can and then stop me if it goes too long. But like, look, here's the issue. And that's why I thought your sermon today was like, I was just like, oh, I'm so glad that it was on Zoom so I could go back and watch it again and again because what's happening is we have to, re- so I, was in a, I was in a meeting with a bunch of, here, I'm going to tie the two of them together. I was in a, in a meeting with a bunch of uh, climate philanthropists. And they said, we have to shut down all the fracking and all the coal mining Appalachia and the fracking in, in Wyoming, Montana. And we have to do it immediately. Um, and so I asked them, I go, well, what about, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who are actually workers in the field, who have families, who are paying mortgages, who want to send their kids to college? And basically what I heard in that meeting was like, it doesn't matter. So what? You know, you, you gotta, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. And so I think... Part of the issue, and this is not a pro or anti-woke in any way, shape, or form, is, and the reason, and I talked about this earlier around transgenerational empathy, the empathy, when I say empathy for the past, it also means what got folks to those positions in the first place. So when I, I was talking earlier about 2016, and I traced a lot of how 2016 happened back to the president that I worked with, Clinton and NAFTA, and the shuttering of factories where we took away people's sense of meaning and purpose and livelihood and shipped those jobs overseas. And I understood why NAFTA was good at the time, but we, um, I'll speak for myself, on the left have never gone back to revisit that history. And we say, oh, they're all a bunch of uneducated, redneck, whatever. But that was us. Those were our, I'll speak for myself. Those were our policies. Those are the things that I advocated for. So part of having and recognizing those folks who don't want to hear that Want, don't want to hear this story is being in a place where we can hear their story and understanding that pain, we do not have a monopoly on pain and trauma and angst about who we are and how we got here. We don't, but oftentimes we think we do. We want to fall into this false binary. So the way we start to approach that is by actually hearing where they're coming from and hearing those, even if we disagree with it at first. But we have to start there. That's, and we can go into that more later. On, on the philanthropy side, uh, I talk about this a little, little bit in the book. Um, I often meet with philanthropists. And that's actually, again, another kind of part of the genesis of, of, of the book. I was meeting with the president, I'm trying to anonymize this, of one of America's largest philanthropies, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And I said to this individual, because they, they put about $800 million a year in philanthropy, the work that this. And I go, so tell me, what does the world look like when you're done? And they said, well, it's you know, social justice. I go, okay, like, I understand. I know the term. I went to Berkeley. <laughs> but what does the world look like? Talk to me about where do we get our food? Who makes the food? How are they paid? Are they working? Are they dancing? How are the kids educated? How are people together in community? Like, talk, tell me about that world. Uh, and I just got a blank stare. They said, no, we have to rebalance this. We need more power here. We need to do wage. I said, those are all important tactics, but what is that deep vision of the world that you want to see, that land of milk and honey? Not that it's finite, not that it's an endpoint, not utopian, not everything's perfect, but tell me what that looks like. And it was just a blank stare. He's like, well, uh, I said, he, I shouldn't have said that. This person said, oh, like, what is, uh, actually what they said was, well, I won't be around for it. So all I, I can only do this work. What I often say when I meet with not-for-profit leaders, NGOs, big NGOs that I work with, I go, tell me what the world has to look like for you to no longer exist. When do you go away? 
And he's like, oh, well, now we're... I said, no, no, no. Like, what would, ha- what would it have to look like? That, well, they say it could take decades. It could take centuries. I said, fine, but tell me what it looks like. So you have to... We call this in future, we call this backcasting. Because what, the, what that means is, tell me what it looks like, and then we'll figure out how to get there. So, the, so to your second question is, the way you get them to think long-term isn't by standing in the present going out. It's going out as far as you can and asking them to look back to what it actually looks like. And then they are able to start constructing the work that has to happen to get to that world. I want to just, I, I see that, the, I know that Adam has a question. L- let me just push back a little on the fracking example for a moment, because it seems to me that so much of our failure in environmental policy in America is because of, we've been sort of paralyzed by short-termism, right? Like, yep. But then these, you know, 10,000 people are going to lose their jobs. So then we engage, we, you know, we lift restrictions or we don't place restrictions where they should be that would really help us build a long-term sustainable um, future. We don't invest in, in a green economy because we have these coal miners. And so, so I'm, I wonder how do you balance both the very real, you know, the, the kind of real needs of the people who are in the trenches right now who will lose their jobs when we build a different kind of economy, a more sustainable economy with the need to be forward thinking and, and actually envision and doing and enacting the policies that will be right for the future. Yeah. I'm not saying we don't do the work because of those folks. I'm saying we just can't disregard those folks like we've done for generations or for decades. Like, there's a, you know how many, you know how many coal miners there are in America, like actively in the coal mines? I, re- I remember reading there are more yoga instructors than coal miners this in is true. America. There's like 70, 000, 50 to 70,000 yeah. coal miners. We could literally give them their salary today for life. 50,000, 200,000 for life. Yeah. And the money that we would save in public health from asthma deaths and cancer rates and black lung, it would act- we would actually come out ahead. We would actually come out ahead. So I, huh? right, that's right. Yeah. Well, then you can guarantee him a larger yacht and a and another another sports car. So, right. But I mean, no, I'm seriously. Like, but these are the conversations we have to have. We actually, in something like that, we can actually run that. But at the same time, it's not just about money. It's about towns. It's about communities. It's about traditions. Right. Um, that we have to take into account. I'm but not saying we don't do it. I'm just saying we just can't be naive and say, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, you know that Hillary Clinton said to the coal miners, we're not going to abandon you when we close down the mines. We're gonna, you're going to be the leaders in the, in the new economy. And then Trump said, we're going to keep the mines open. And they went with that, you know, and the coal miners voted for the person who said he was going to keep the mines open, even though she, I mean, she did try to address the problem, right? Yeah. So... Right. I, okay. So I want to go to Adam, who I, I see in the back uh, with a comment, and then we'll come up here. Um, yeah. Hey. Um, all right. Thanks hey. for doing this. I guess my question, the thing that I always struggle with, especially as you think about how we think about a shared future, is on the one hand, I kind of get your point about um, about community, about how we think about. Um, kind of a shared set of perspectives moving forward. But I also worry a little bit about, like the fracking I think is an interesting example, but but a lot of what Sharon talked about today, about kind of rejection, DeSantis rejection of wokeism, is really about a fundamental lack of shared values and also fundamentally a lack of shared history or even, or even a reckoning 
with what the reality of our history is. So w when you think about from the standpoint of like, where do you draw the line between being empathetic? And it's easy, it's easy and we should be empathetic to the coal miner who's losing his way of life. But then you have, but, but should we be empathetic about people who are espousing roles of you know, black and brown people, roles of women in society? Like at, at what point does, does the empathy actually become an obstacle in developing a vision for how we think the future should progress? Or, or I'll even go further where it becomes not just an obstacle, but it's actually used against us. Mm -hmm. Right, because we'll be so empathetic that they just steamroll over us. That's actually that's that's even where I think it's it becomes even more dangerous. Or so, millions of us buy his book, and then he becomes a U.S. senator who's going to dedicate his life to taking away the rights and freedoms of LGBTQ and Black and Brown people in America. Yeah, and right. So, that's our empathy coming to bite us. Yes. So the the empathy having empathy doesn't mean we roll over or we kowtow. It means having a better understanding so that when we do engage them on the front lines of conversation and dialogue, because those are the front lines we want to engage in with them now, as opposed to the front lines that we may have to engage with them if we ignore them for 10 or 15 more years, more, more intense front lines, is instead of saying, like, we have all the answers, we've read all the books, we actually know the true history, you're, you're an idiot, you're a fool, you're a racist, those things may all be true in one way or another, but when we paint with folks with a broad brush like that, we do the very thing that we don't want them doing to us. So, all, so, so what I'm advocating for is a different approach. I mean, look, this is what, what it, it's, it's crazy. When I started off in politics in 1996, we would actually knock on people's doors and talk to them and have conversations and try to persuade them and hear their story and try to bring them over to a different type of understanding. Now, the last presidential campaign I was involved in is all about micro-targeting people with digital ads, either to turn them out to vote or to suppress the vote. Mm. And we've moved away from that, that way of interfacing with each other as humans. So it's, it's a great question and it can be used against us. I'm just advocating that we do more of it, but not in a way where we go to a certain point where it then gets used against us. Mm. Thank you. Okay. Both of you, Ruth and Thank you so much. So, um, I definitely, I'm one of, I probably, everyone here who hasn't already read your book is going to be going out to get it and read it. So, my question, I'm resonating so much with what you're saying, and I, I'm recognizing in myself that I think small, and I'm comfortable with the small, and like what you just said. And I can think of a future world in terms of beloved community. Like, and, but, I, but in our time, it's the big systems and like trying to imagine a world, I, I, I block. I, don't, I, can't, I can't quite go beyond that. I wonder if you can offer some help. Like you and conversations you've had with others imagining a bigger picture of, you know, on, an, on a global level. Yeah. What, what, what's, what bridges, what has to happen small? I'm, I'm all about that. Well, so, so, so first of all, I think where, where the real action is, is in the small. It's when we have these very big macro collective visions of the world to come that we actually get lost in them. And, and actually it becomes, we give up because we don't see that perfect regenerative agricultural world manifest. So then we get sad and depressed. I, th there's, so, so Buckminster Fuller, um, who I talked about earlier, 
was asked by the U.S. Navy in World War II to help them solve a problem. And the problem was the ships that were moving cargo across the Atlantic and then the Pacific were getting larger and larger. But the issue was the rudder had to get larger and larger to turn these ships. It got to the point where the rudders were just too big. They couldn't figure out the hydraulics to make these rudders turn. So it came up with this idea called the trim tab, which was literally just a four-inch piece of metal put at the end of that rudder that if you actually just turn the trim tab into the current, which meant like against the direction that you wanted to go, it would swing the entire rudder around. So you no longer had to pow- do this big, massive thing. You had to use just a small thing. Mm. The way a trim tab works, though, is you need time and space. It's not immediate, but a trim tab if you do this, what we call small action grade effect, over time will lead to you moving in the direction that you want to go into. And Buckminster Fuller believed in this so much that on his tombstone, it said, call me trim tab. That's literally what he kind of saw his life work. And when you read more about kind of the interviews that he has about this, he goes, yeah, I came up with these big ideas for the world, but it was these small actions that led to chain reactions, how he interacted with people and with humans. Doesn't mean we can all be perfect all the time, but those are the trim tabs. It could be what you, how you vote or how you consume or how you are with other people in community. Those, he, he believed those at scale is what actually led the, to the world that we wanted. So you don't have to dream a big map. Oh, this is what the country would look like. like. Those things are great. And that's sometimes what I get to do in a room and it's fun. But it's really the smaller things when you're in the buffet line, how you interact with someone, how you maintain eye contact for one or two seconds that actually builds the future world that we want. Because the future world that we want isn't necessarily, you know, these massive, big macro global systems that we tend to think about futurists do. Those are important. Those are great. I love doing that. But that's actually not what we're talking about. We're talking about a more kind of what my friend Doug Rushkoff calls a team human world. Right. But we do that by those, what you say, those small actions, those trim tabs are actually where all the action is. I wanted to add one piece to this, which is one thing that I love about the book, Ruth, and that I know you'll appreciate is that there are exercises throughout the book that we can do to kind of personalize and and internalize each of these lessons. And so I think what you're doing is acknowledging that this kind of thinking is very counterintuitive for us. And um, and so it, it actually, you actually help us build the muscle so that we can get yeah. to to a, a different kind of um, uh, of thinking and engagement. We're going to take. Oh wow! I was going to say one last question. How do I decide? Okay, I mean, if why don't we do these last three and we'll do them very quickly? Okay, will you? Do you want to start? This was this is incredible. Um, have you read Valerie Kaur's book, See No Stranger? Yes. Yes. Valerie okay. actually. Um, she's blurb, she's this a blurb book. on the back. Well, there you go. So, and what about Sean Smith on um, uh, Dear America, like a breakup letter from a white man? I, I, I know the book, but I've not read it yet. It's not a book. It's it's, it's a TED talk. Anyway, my but, point. So, so the the thing is that's so interesting to me, right? Because I was born in South Africa, came here. I thought that America was. I thought America like. There was no racism in America. Like, I came from apartheid yep. until 2020, right? And, and as a lawyer and reading Just Mercy, and, and I was a district attorney in the, you know. So the thing is that when we think about ourselves just as Americans or South Africans or Asians or whatever it is we are, instead of this global community, and it mm. goes really it goes back, right, to Gandhi's point of be the change you want to see in the world, I cannot not be a racist. I was born into a system of racism looking at the top 
and asking the, ask, being in rooms with people that are benefiting from the system to change the system is not how it's going to change. Mm. It has to change from the bottom up, yeah. right? Am I, so that's like Correct. the point that you're making. Yes. And so as individuals, really, from my perspective, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's just do the individual work. Figure out our own system thinking. Where is our own system thinking flawed, first and foremost? And then how it is, and the way, because of the internet, we've become a global family. So those are the first five chapters of the book, and the six, no, but the six, no, I'm saying, the first, that is it, and the, the last chapter is called, find, it's called Find the Others. Sorry, but what is your plan? What is the... It's a whole other conversation. So we're working with a lot of different organizations. We have these things called long path gathers where people are now coming together in different cities and communities who are doing this work. But I can talk about that when I'm not on a time. Um, I, I am a social worker by training. And one of the classes I took in social work was political economy of social welfare. And one of the first things that we learned is that culture comes from the economic system. The economic system needs to replicate itself. It creates culture in mm. order to do that. And so it's very hard sitting here. Like when we grow up and we want to be an activist or whatever, like that's a job or a role that we are conceiving that's embedded in culture. So it's I, I have a hard time seeing the possibility of how things are going to bubble up I'm persuadable, but I have a hard time seeing how things are going to bubble up because I feel like we the problem is the economic system that we're in that is not it doesn't compute costs. And until we change the economic system to consider not just kind of the, the productivity, the output, the growth, the whatever, the consumption, if we can think about the cost to the planet, et cetera, like until we're able to do that, I don't have a lot of hope for for there being an alternative that people can step into. And so I, I feel like I've come to a place of real economic activism, and I'm wondering where that fits in. With so I, it's a great question. So the book I almost wrote was around kind of late stage capitalism and the impact that it's doing on the planet Earth and the individual. But what I realized is a lot of the a lot of what and I agree with you 100 percent what I came up against was, at least, and this is how I see it, was an internal recognition that until we have an internal rethink of our own stories and our own psychodynamic, it'll be very difficult for us to lean into those new and create those new economic systems that we want. So it's not just bubble up, but it's we have to reconfigure ourselves internally before we will actually be able to accept and create those larger macroeconomic post-capitalistic systems. So I, I've worked in a bunch of post-capitalism work forever. I've read every white paper. I was in every conference. And the answers are all up there. And we had them all. And then everyone walked out of there and went and got an $8 Starbucks and went about their whole day. And I was like, okay, so we, we know what it looks like, but we're living this way. Like, what, what is that? Mm -hmm. It's grief. Yeah. It's trauma. It's success. It's a whole host of stuff that probably started two, 300,000 years ago. Mm. But we're at a point now where we can actually understand and see that. And so what, what, what my one, one attempt to reconcile and start doing that work is long path. There are a lot of different ways of doing that. But again, it's my belief that if we don't do that internal work and that internal rethink, all those white papers and things that I've been to will just keep being there because we won't, 
it won't, it's okay, we'll be like aliens on Mars. We won't know how to breathe that atmosphere. But it's there, we know what it looks like, but it takes an internal reconfiguration. And that's what I'm advocating for, is that internal reconfiguration in terms of our connection with the past, present, and future so that we can go into those kind of post-capitalistic phases because I don't think it's going to happen unless we do that, I think. Okay, our last question is going to come from Sean, and I hope let's Ooh, keep it brief, and then, and then we'll wrap. Okay, so bring us home. And as a fellow Clintonista, I cannot help but to mention the passing of Christine McVie, yep. this read, who, who wrote Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, um, right? So um, I'm sold on the what, right? But when I, you, you said you didn't want to talk about the, the sort of um, climate change tech, but those are some of the most optimistic people I know, yep. right? Despite the media narratives... Um, so can we take us home by, by moving us from the what to the how? What is it going to take for the public narratives, the media narratives, to change? E or does it not matter? Is it sufficient for us to look internally, for enough of us to be doing this work internally, that eventually the story is going to change? Do you have thoughts of the strategy of breaking the, the, narr the public narrative here because the public narrative of uh, the public narrative of short-termism and the public narrative, I think the there. If you talk to, for ex just to give you the example, if you talk to people who are doing long, serious investing in climate tech, they're actually optimistic Very. that over the next five to seven years or a little bit longer, we will see substantial advances that will help us move the needle, tremendously, like, transformationally. Yep. But they're not. We don't hear those stories. We just hear the stories of Im imminent catastrophe, yep. which l leads us to all think that the world's going to end. So why bother? And to give up hope. So, exactly. so it's it's a bottom up top. There's a bottom up top down strategy. Bottom up, it's it's how we do this work internally and how do we connect it to a larger purpose. But I didn't talk a lot about it. But in the book, I talk about telos, ultimate aim and purpose that we need as individuals. We hear about it all the time. There's a dozens of books. What is my purpose? We have to connect that to a larger purpose for homo sapiens writ large. It can't just be about the own purpose of our life. It has to connect to a larger vision. That's one, right? And we have to do the internal work so that instead of having a desired future, we have what I call an examined desired future. So we really turn that over and kind of wrestle with where that quote unquote first level desired future comes from and go one layer deeper. That's, that's kind of the bottom up internal work. Top down, you're correct. So, um, it's, we're going to announce it next week, but so I'm the host of a new TV show on PBS called A Brief History of the Future. And in the show, I travel the world in season one where we meet with the people who are building better tomorrows across what we call all different hardwares. So that, that's, that's the bottom. So that's the top down. But what's interesting about it is we're not just doing, so we're doing hardware. We're doing a lot of people who are doing climate technology. That's the classic hardware. But we're also meeting with people who are doing work in restorative uh, criminal justice. So prison abolition, right? Transform, how do we transform neighborhoods? How do we transform communities to exist in this world? So it's not just about innovation at the factory hardware silicon layer, but also at the biological layer. How do we as humans work and create and live in these better ways that are more in harmony with our own internal self and barometers? but as well as the external. So that, that's our attempt. So, so I should say my work is the book and what we do at Long Path Labs and this TV show. And, you know, germane to this room, ep episode three is called Once Upon a Time. And 
we're meeting with some of the best kind of directors and storytellers of our generation about the work that they've done and how do they actually start rethinking the stories that they tell. Mm. So it's not just about doom and gloom tomorrows, mm -hmm. but about hopeful, awe-filled tomorrows of what we can be. So that's our attempt of, of doing it. And for, so for those of you in the room who are in any of those worlds, you keep doing that work. And when you're in a conversation, be it with philanthropists or the wherever, everyone in here is very engaged in one way or another in, in the world, just the only question you have to ask is like, what is the world that we want to see? That's a very dangerous question because all of a sudden it makes people start to rethink, moving away from what they don't want to what they do want, and it starts a chain reaction. So that's, that's how we do the work, kind of bottom-up in the internal, but also top-down narrative. Mm, that, thank you. Thank you, Ari. Um, okay. You're amazing. That was incredible. Um, I'm just thinking now about how we're in the, we're deep in the Jacob narratives in the Torah, and um, there is a secret that Jacob knows that's been passed down from his grandfather Abraham, which is that this Jewish people will be as as numerous as the stars in the sky and and grains of sand on the beach, but we're also going to go through a, a living hell of hundreds of years of enslavement and then many more years of, of pain and suffering afterwards. And he holds that, he holds that core knowledge in his being. And as he's preparing to die at the end of the book of Genesis, he calls his sons together and he gets, he feels like I need to tell you the secret. And he's not good at communicating the secret to them, but he basically makes them promise, you know, what, like you're going to have to promise me that my, that my bones will be buried in this place, a promise that then Joseph makes, the brothers also promise him as well. And the idea is, I want you to transport this sort of, this, this future that's almost impossible for you to even imagine, but you have to keep your eyes on because as much as you're going to be in the muck and the, and the pain and the suffering of now, you have to be able to, you have to know that there is a different kind of future possible. And I'm so grateful to you for lifting my, my eyes and my spirit to believe that there's a better way for all of us. And I just bless you with continued strength um, for you and Sharon and your beautiful kids. Um, I really, I hope you continue to dream great audacious dreams and to find the ability to communicate them to a world that desperately needs to hear what you have to say. Thank so you so thank much. you so much. Thank you for coming. By the book. It's awesome. All right. Here's the, here's the Nikun. You can join me if you want before we leave. Na 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 Thank you all. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe and please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.